Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Good day. Welcome in New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today I'm pleased and honored to have with us uh, Mrs. Leslie Chamberlain. Leslie Chamberlain is a renowned journalist and writer. She is author of a number of well-received books, among which are Nietzsche and Turin, Motherland, A Philosophical History of Russia, and Lenin's Private War. Today, we are speaking about her newest book, The Ministry of Darkness, How Sergei Uvarov Created Modern Russia, published by Bloomsbury. Welcome, Leslie Chamberlain. Hello. Lovely to be here. Leslie Chamberlain, what is the thesis of your book, Well, it's a book about the life of a very much neglected 19th century Russian statesman called Sergei Uvarov. And um, Uvarov's great contribution to Russian history was to introduce a conservative ideology that uh, the Tsar at the time, Nicholas I, but I think subsequent rulers, have followed. And that ideology had three principles. It was... um, orthodoxy, as in the Orthodox Church, autocracy, the founding principle of Tsarist rule, and what I call official nationality, so the nationality but guided by the state. And those three terms were an answer. They were a Russian conservative answer to the three famous terms of the French Revolution, that is to say equality, liberty, and uh, nationality. So, sorry, fraternity. So, equality, liberty, fraternity. And so the Russians came up with a kind of counter-answer, saying that those uh, those three principles uh, from the French Revolution weren't weren't uh, suitable foundations for governance in Russia. And so Uvarov came up with his famous, uh, the slogan is famous, but it hasn't been well interpreted. So he came up with his famous uh, tripartite slogan in Russian, uh, Pravoslavia, that is orthodoxy, Samodirjavia, autocracy, and Narodnost, which I'm construing as official nationality. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, uh, Uvarov's family background and upbringing? Um, yes, well, he was born into, uh, into gentry circles. He, um, Catherine the Great was his, uh, his godmother. His father was... Um, was a soldier and a courtier, and his mother was um, uh, the daughter of a of, an, uh, of a well-born family, aristocratic family. Uh, that said, the uh, this their marriage was uh, slightly slightly wayward. Um, his father disappeared, probably probably died in battle, but he disappeared, leaving um, very great debts when uh, Sergei was was really quite young, and um, his mother uh, struggled to. To bring up her children in the way that she wanted to, because there was there's no money. She also had a rather rather forthright personality. So um, 
Muvarov did grow up in, in, in the highest circles. In, in fact, he was in a way adopted by um, the Kurakin family, who were um, very, um, very highly placed uh, servants of, of, of the Tsar. Um, but Muvarov had a bit of a, I think he, oh, he was an extremely clever man and extremely well educated because of this, uh, this adoption by the Kurakin family. But he had a bit of a, a chip on his shoulder. So that my, my book um, is also also delves into his uh, into his personality and his private character um, because that uh, that that doesn't show him in a particularly attractive light as a person. But and it may have been it may be one of the reasons why he has been neglected. He's not a he's not a moral hero of, of Russian history, but he's a very important, I think, um, political figure. How important uh, to Ivarov was his uh uh, education in Germany. Well, that was that was the. I mean, I think perhaps we should say that um, he, he, he was he was born in in uh, 1786, and uh, it was um, it was the done thing for for young Russians of of noble birth to go to Germany and study because uh, the German universities at the end of the 18th century, early 19th century were amongst the best in Europe and uh, there was also, there was this kinship between Russia and Germany in terms of education which had really been laid down by by Peter the Great so Ovarov was was doing the conventional thing um but I think because of the the extraordinary amount of philosophy and history that was coming out of Germany at the time I mean it wasn't it wasn't a nation but German scholars were preeminent in history and philosophy um, that that was very important. In fact, it it made Uvarov a kind of a kind of European, which set him on a bit of a collision course as a as a loyal Russian. Because Germany, although it wasn't the German thought, of it wasn't um, as libertarian as French, was certainly liberalising compared with uh, with with Russian thought at the time. Ideologically and culturally, what did Uvarov pick up in his time in Vienna? All oh, right. Well, we should. That's that, that's um, that's quite a jump, isn't it? So he he studied he studied in Germany, and he was um, he was attached from an early age to the to the Russian Foreign Ministry. That was part, partly because his uncle Kurakin was um, was was a was at the at the highly placed up at the Foreign Ministry. Therefore, he was able to find his um, his his protege a, a position, and so Uvarov, um was sent was sent to, to Vienna as a as a as a young diplomat. Uh, this was in 1806, and he I think he he was totally enamoured of um, let's say upper class uh, European society, speaking French, led by French culture. He'd always been a great a great fan of French culture. He very much belonged to those upper classes that are portrayed in Tolstoy's War and Peace, who, who spoke better French than they did Russian, who had, uh, they were French manners rather than Russian manners, who organized their, their uh, grand home lives um, around uh, French-speaking culture. So I think that Uwarov really found his, himself in his element when he was in, this, in, in French circles in, in Vienna. These, uh, there were a lot of French exiles from Napoleon that based themselves in Vienna, um, and I suppose that, that mixing with exiles um, bolstered his feeling, uh, his antipathy towards the French Revolution. And 
uh, nurtured in him that feeling, which he had in common with um, with many Russian conservatives, but that the Ancien Regime was still a viable uh, political model, and that Russia should base itself on that on that model. So he was living the Ancien Regime. He was living uh, with with its last living representatives and admiring them. And, and um, he was writing essays in French. And um, indeed, you know, th- those, were, those were rather fine essays in French, paying tribute to, to uh, surviving figures of the Ancien Regime. So I would say it conser- c- confirmed him as a, as a conservative, at the same time as it immersed him in a, in a, in a European society that was nevertheless progressive because he met uh, in Vienna, he, he, he didn't only meet, um, as it were, rather aged uh, members of French aristocracy. He met Germans. He met the Schlegel brothers who were, who were writing uh, philosophy and literary criticism in Germany. And he met, um, he met educational um, uh, theorists. He met those who were trying to create a, a more liberal state in, in Prussia and um, it put him on, as you say, it put him on a on a on a course to 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 liberalise, but just not not to revolutionise. So it put him it put him at odds with conservative Russia, at the same time as it it created a conservative ideology for Russia. So it was the beginning, I think, of a of a great ambivalence in his in his career, which was both his um, his glory and his uh, and his downfall because. There were moments. There would be moments in Russian history when you just couldn't be ambivalent. Early in his career, after his return uh, to Russia from Vienna, Uvarov entered into an exchange with the arch reactionary theorist and diplomat Joseph de Mestre. Can you tell us about that exchange and how they agreed and disagreed? Yes. Well, Uvarov. Um, went back to Russia to serve uh, um, to serve as a, as a as a civil servant, basically, and I think that partly had to do with the position of his mother, who was a widow. Um, she she lacked she lacked money. He needed to um, he needed to to have a, a, a certain job, and he he married uh, a few years after his posting in Vienna. He married um, a very well placed. Um, Woman who who whose legacy um, assured him of a position in the in, in in aristocratic life, and in a way the 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 exchange for that was was taking up a position in uh, in, in in the Russian civil service. He entered the the Ministry of Education and and uh, acquired a, a position from which he could be very influential in St. Petersburg and then in the, in the whole of Russia in the direction of educational reform. Um, but he, because of the, the ambivalence that, that had built up in him during his time in, in Europe, he was, um, he was writing essays, he was projecting plans for reforms of Russian education, which seemed on the one hand progressive and in a European sense, and on the, on the other hand, were, um, were respecting Russian uh, conservatism, and the um, the man who was at the time the Sardinian ambassador to St. Petersburg, Joseph de Mestre, um, said to him, "Look, this won't do." And, and, and as we know, de Mestre was a was a sort of arch 
arch-conservative, not to say reactionary, who was um, not not given to to progressive educational ideals. He wanted to keep education as very much the privilege of the few, and he wasn't. He just didn't respect Uvarov's ambivalence, and he said to him, "You you can't you can't make a career like this. You can't be a success like this. You must." You must get out of your ambivalence and and, and commit yourself. Um, I don't think Uvarov ever did, and I think actually that that's to his credit. But um, it was a very very interesting exchange, I think. How would you compare Uvarov's views with those of the Russian writer and historian Karamzin and their approaches to conservatism? Oh, I, I'm not sure I can answer that very simply, but um, Kar- Karamzin was was also a conservative and he didn't have the ambivalence, but he was held in, in very high esteem because he had, I think, great affection for, for the Russian people. But Karamzin was an absolute autocrat, uh, but in a way, it, it, it's one of those mysterious things, out of affection for Russia, out of affection for the, the Russian people. And one of the things that's often said about Ivarov is, insofar as he, he he did come down on the side of autocracy, and he he was, um, yeah, he was a conservative. It's often said that he didn't really respect Russia or Russians, and uh, and it's often pointed out that he uh, that as a writer he wrote he wrote better in in, in French. Uh, he also wrote in German, and he was a classicist and a scholar. He was. You know, in a way, he was he was a cosmopolitan, and and I think, I mean, in my book, I've I've suggested that some of the things that Uvarov was, that is, uh, European educated, cosmopolitan, highly intelligent, just made it very very difficult for him to narrow his worldview to this Russian absolutism, even though he was trying to create an ideology which would express it at its best. So um, Uvarov. Was in a in a way, I think Karamzin will always be held in 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 greater affection by Russian conservatives than by than Uvarov, and I think that might be the clue to it that he the feeling was that he didn't really respect and like Russia. What were <clears throat> sorry? What were Uvarov's theories and policies in the realm of education in the reign of uh, Tsar Alexander Pavlovich? Alexander the first. Well, Alexander yes. the first. Yes, Ale- Alexander the first. Um, Came to the throne in in uh, in 1801, and he and he came. He he had a um a, a liberal education in the hands of a a Swiss uh, tutor called La Harpe, and um, he came to the throne full of uh, plans for Russian reform. And uh, this this chimed very well with um I mean particularly after Russia was successful against Napoleon. There was a great um, sort of upsurge of, of liberal hope in Russia, of which Uvarov was a kind of ambivalent part. He, 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 formed, um, he formed a literary group with uh, some of the leading people of the time called Azamas. And in that group, there were very conservative people, but they were also the most radical uh, um, uh, sort of activists, potential activists of the time, uh, Nikolai Turgenev. No, no relation of the, the later novelist, but Nikolai Turgenev was um, was a Republican and was a was a, a, an advocate of the French Revolution. Um, so in this milieu, I think that Uvarov channeled his his European and liberal side into educational reform. He tried to um, 
he genuinely tried to make it more available to 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 more of the classes so that he he has been called i think quite fairly the um the the, the founder of of modern russian education and and his role really was to to extend it to you know beyond the upper classes to um people from as i said uh, the Razmachinsky, the mixed classes, and and to the um, to to the to the serfs even he was it was still a very stratified kind of education system, but it was definitely Vorov's role was definitely to to open it up and to create more opportunities, and and that was both at a at a sort of um, school level um, and then gymnasium level and then also universities. Um, Vorov was really the founder of St. Petersburg University. I mean, the university was, was rather older, but there, there wasn't a university in St. Petersburg until 1819 when Uvarov um, transformed what was the pedagogical institute into the university. So he was, um, I think he was a great figure in education. I, I don't think there's any ambivalence about that. In the book, you write that quote, the plight of the Western or Western-leading committed Russian intellectual, valuing integrity, reason, and probity, but who was a Russian living in Russia where he could not make those values work for him, was virtually for the first time occurred in the case of Uvarov. Can you expand, unquote, can you expand a bit on that? Well, that's, that's the tragedy of his... Um of his life, really, his professional life and his personal life, because he he was formed as a European, and as I say, not as a as the most the most revolutionary kind of European like uh, Nikolai Turgenev, but certainly as a as a as a progressive rather on the on the Prussian model, and uh, you know there were elements of democratization in his in his outlook, as I've just explained, uh, channeled particularly into into education. And, and what he tried to do in, I think, the whole of his career was to, to fit, to, to get this, this vision of his to come to some kind of fruition in, in, in a Russia where the politics was always volatile and very rarely in the rest of his career, after that first little episode with, with Alexander I, it was very rarely um, a, a liberal politics that he was, he was contending with. So what happened was that um, Alexander I, after about um, 1818, 1819, um, became much more um, wary of uh, any any possible democratization. He 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 gave up on the idea of providing Russia with a with a constitution. Um, and Uvarov was was very shocked by um, Alexander I turn towards reaction, which was bolstered by um, Metternich in Austria and other other conservative forces actually in, in Europe. And and um, there was there's an, an extraordinary letter of Ulvaros written to the Tsar saying, um, you know, I can't I can't believe you're sanctioning the 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 reaction that's coming over Russia. And this reaction was taking the form of closing down some of the newly opened university departments. Um, replacing um, professors who had uh, European ideas with with uh, sort of non-entities who would just um, teach uh, um, the most reactionary 
patriotism in Russia. And Uraris, I think, was genuinely shocked. And he wrote a six-page letter to, to the Tsar, and the Tsar didn't answer. Not only did he not answer, but Uvarov lost his job, was, was removed from education. This was in, uh, in, in the early 1820s and uh, was really made to, to sit in a back room and do not very much for the next um, four or five years. And I think he was so, so shocked by um, finding that the Tsar, in whom he had genuinely believed, didn't uh, didn't respond in this case that he he had to reinvent himself um, as someone who could deal with Russian political reality and that reality was that it was going to change at short notice that it was ruthless that it really wasn't principled that it was so or that it was so dominated by the need to maintain um, civil order in Russia that he was either going to have to work with that or or his professional life was over. So, so he turned himself into a more overt conservative, borderline reactionary, um, found a way of serving, serving the Tsar, um, found a way of serving autocracy, came up with this famous slogan that I began by talking about, and managed to create, uh, to, to serve for, for 15, 20 years, um, until finally, you know, he was found to be not not reactionary enough and, and lost his job again and that was towards the end of his life. So so his whole professional life and his personal life is a struggle to accommodate um, what, uh, as it were, enlightened ideas he'd acquired in Europe with this persistent return of reaction in, in Russia. And that's, uh, for me, that's a, that's a tragedy and it's one that lives on in our, in our own time. What was Uvarov's reaction to the 14th of December, 1825, the Dekabrista revolt? Right. So we're going out of, going backwards and forwards here, but the um, the Decemberist insurrection of, 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 of 1825 was the first the first sign of of um, revolutionary momentum in uh, in in modern Tsarist Russia. And it it came right at the end of the reign of Alexander I. Alexander I was already uh, something of a hermit, something of a recluse. Um, and uh, it, in fact, it occurred in, in the kind of interregnum between Alexander's death and and the the uh, taking over the throne of his brother by his brother Nicholas I. And the ruling, the ruling class, the ruling circles around the Tsar found this insurrection by members of their own class. I mean, the, the, the hallmark of this insurrection was that it was, it was led by, by sons of the aristocracy, uh, who were who were serving in, uh, who were serving in the army, and this was so shocking to the ruling class that it that it that Nicholas I when he came to the throne um early in 1826 uh, introduced um a, a regime of of extreme reaction uh out of fear of this 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 germ of the French revolution spreading to to Russia um and Ivarov, as i said had already lost his job by that time because the reaction had set in in Russia uh some years earlier, in 1819, um, but when the new when Nicholas I came to the throne, he could see that he had a, a chance to start again, and he managed to get himself onto one or two um, education committees 
and from there to work himself back up again in the career that he'd chosen originally. And so by 1832, he was um, he was the deputy education minister. So I suppose that he was able to profit from this this moment of panic and from um, from the accession of of Nicholas I to relaunch his career. But at the same time, um, his his, his negative reaction and the use he made of the Decembrist insurrection cut him off decisively from the more revolutionary inclined friends that he'd had in the in, in, in the 1810s. So um, he would never again have anything to do with, say, Nikolai Turgenev, who was one of the leading insurrectionary figures. What was his relationship uh, uh, like with uh, Tsar uh, Nikolai Pavlovich, Nicholas I? Right. Well, I don't think I've, I've not uh, come across anything particularly personal between um, Tsar Nicholas and Uvarus, but I believe the Tsar thought he was a very, a very able uh, servant, uh, minister, and um, that that trust in his uh, in his able service lasted from 1832 when he was deputy minister through the making his his uh, accession to the ministry in 1833. And right through to um, to 1848, uh, when the uh, the climate of, of of revolution returned to Europe and seemed to threaten Russia, and it was in that crisis that Nicholas I finally lost confidence in Uvarov, or at least was um, was surrounded by by advisers who 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 were against Uvarov, and and so that was that was the time when Nicholas uh, removed. When, when Uvarov's hand was was forced and he was he was no longer minister, but I, I don't think it was a strictly personal relationship. I mean, these things are uh, personal relationships are not predictable. I think even in 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 in, in politically uh, um, in countries that are dominated by by ideological strictness like like Russia. So, for instance. I think we all know about the friendship between um, Nicholas I and the poet Pushkin, and Pushkin was one of the thorns in the in the in the uh, in the side of the autocracy. His poetry was critical of of, uh, of the reign of the Tsar and of the corruption of of Nikolayev and Russia. But the Tsar liked him. Um, I haven't seen any sign that he liked Uvarov in the same way. Just to say, he was a good servant. What was Uvarov's relationship with uh, Pushkin? Oh, that was that was very fraught, I think, and um, I think you know, it's, 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 um, Pushkin's biographers have paid some attention to it, and I've, I also paid quite a lot of attention to it in my book because it brings out some of those um, those less attractive traits in, in Uvarov's personal character, as well as uh, somewhat putting his ambivalence on the spot. So, in his capacity as Minister of Education, Uvarov was also um, pretty much in charge of censorship, which brought him into conflict with really that that first generation of uh, golden age Russian writers whom we we all um, admire and love. And uh, Pushkin was was chief among amongst them. Um, now Varov, in his youth, when he'd founded that uh, that club called Arzamas with uh, with the leading sort of intellectuals and poets. Of the day, that is slightly slightly older than, than Pushkin, but Pushkin was also a member of Arzamas at the end of its time. So, so Uvarov 
had originally thought of himself as a writer and indeed as a kind of romantic writer in the European uh, tradition of the time. And I think there was always a kind of competition with Pushkin because Pushkin, uh, what, had, what had happened 10 years after Azamas, 15 years after Azamas, was that Pushkin had emerged as a, as a poet of genius, whereas Uvarov was a bureaucrat. And he, um, he, he felt that difference quite keenly, I think. He was, because he was a highly educated man and a literary man, he, he recognized Pushkin's genius. Uh, he was jealous, um, and he had to. As I say, he had a he had a a character which was not of the highest uh, conscientiousness, really. And I think he had to 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 put pressure on himself not to to punish Pushkin in a way that would have satisfied his own own Schadenfreude. Um, and uh, there are ways in which Uvarov even seems to be implicated in in Pushkin's end, which I think. Uh, Many people know it was a was the result of a duel, um, and that duel happened when he was confronted at a at a ball. He confronted um, his wife's lover, and there was a duel at dawn, and Pushkin was killed. Um, it's said that Uvarov made sure that Pushkin and the lover Dantes were, you know, in the same room at the same time, so one might see him as um, as scheming. Uh, for Pushkin's downfall, that's put, that's putting it too strongly. But he was he was very much embroiled with Pushkin's fate, and also his reputation. Uh, some Russian speakers who I mentioned this podcast and the the book um, tell me that uh, they had difficulty uh, taking Uvarov seriously because of Pushkin's attacks on Uvarov in his poetry and other writings, um, in particular Pushkin's uh, negative comments on Uvarov's what contemporaries refer to as pederast, quote-unquote pederast tendencies. Is that, would you agree with that assessment? Well, I, no, I, I mean, I certainly don't think it's the reason for not taking Uvarov seriously. I mean, that, that, that would be ridiculous. No, no, just in terms of, contempt, well, in terms of uh, many Russians, Kulturni and Telegandeliudi, wouldn't uh, or don't think much of Uvarov simply automatically simply because of what Pushkin wrote about him. Right. Well, again, I mean, I don't think that I don't think what Pushkin wrote about him. And Pushkin wasn't wasn't an angel either. Pushkin had many many grievances and and was po- politically somewhat aberrant. Not not everybody would admire his um, his attack against the Poles. His 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 uh, his praise for the Russian. You know the, the way the, way the Russian uh, occupation put down the Polish uprising in in 1831. So um, I don't think Pushkin is particularly is a, is a perfect standard for judging for judging anyone. I mean, one one takes Pushkin on his own merits and Uvarov on his own merits. Uh, Uvarov didn't have a nice character. Pushkin had a complicated one, and he he was a poet of genius. Uvarov had a complicated character, was a great founder of Russian education and tried his best to modernize Russia, but uh, he failed. He, and he failed. And if you dwell on that failure, you can also dwell on some of his personal failings. But, um, you know, people on all sides in politics have personal failings. So what Pushkin wrote in his poems, I think, was just part of a, a personal squabble between them. And um, if if Uvarov was... Um, 
was bisexual. I mean, it doesn't matter to us now. It didn't. I don't think it mattered a great deal in Russia at the time, but it was it was good for sort of um, poetic for innuendo for gossip. Um, it didn't recommend him to Pushkin as a particularly nice person, but I I, I don't think I don't think one can take Pushkin as as, as one's guide to Uvarov. How did Uravarov react to the publication of Chudayev's philosophical letter? Well, Peter Chudayev, Pyotr Chudayev, was was stunningly brave in writing a series of so-called philosophical letters, pointing out or underscoring what many people felt was Russia's backwardness its intellectual and cultural backwardness and political backwardness vis-a-vis Western Europe. And uh, Chodayev spelled out, as it were, the horrors of a a rather dark and um, uh, politically benighted society. And he was bold enough or reckless enough to suggest that um, this was in good part, a consequence of the Russian Orthodox Church, and that Russia would be better off if it had been a Catholic country, and so on and so on. Well, these were these were extraordinary uh, things to say in Russia, um, and uh, he, he he must have known that he would come in for more than just censure for uh, publishing these letters. And indeed, his his publisher also was very very brave in in in. in in, in setting them in type, and uh, uh, both both were were, were punished. Um, and I think Uvarov, it, it, this, the Chudayev letters simply gave Uvarov another another target to hit with his conservatism. And this was really at the peak of his of his career as the Minister of uh, Public Enlightenment. And so he, um, he 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 put he pushed back. It helped it helped him to enforce his conservative vision for Russia. Uh, to have somebody like Chudayev um, att- attacking it, really. he was he was they, they were they were they were opponents, and Uvarov was in, in a stronger position both as the minister and as the uh, as the de facto head of um, of, of censorship. And so uh, he he was instrumental in getting um, Chudayev uh, imprisoned and uh, declared mad. Uh, it's not a not a not a happy episode in in, in Russian history. Uh, Uvarov was not only not only it was not only Uvarov who was to to blame in this in this episode, but it was a very un, unhappy one. What was Uvarov's relationship with the so-called Westernizers and Slavophiles? Right. Well, that was a, that's an interesting um, that's an interesting question, and one has to remember that um, that what Uvarov um, said in public was not necessarily what he what he felt in private. As I've said he was very, in a way, very pro-European. He, in himself, he functioned as a European scholar. Who was writing in German, writing in French, reading uh, reading gr- Greek? Um, he, he was uh, he, he was all the time he was minister. He was writing his his thesis on um, on, on on a on a poet called uh, Nonos von Panopolis. Um, he he was a genuine scholar, and this was always 
that was in the background. And he, he felt very strongly that he belonged to a kind of cosmopolitan uh, modern world, uh, which, which Russia, he tried to introduce into Russia, but, um, but with, with some difficulty because um, university and academic circles were also subject to, to political pressures. So where did he stand vis-a-vis the Westernizers and the Slavophiles? Well, um, it's to say that the Westernizers were uh, progressive members of the intelligentsia who thought, who broadly thought that Russia should try to follow a Western path. Um, and that this takes us back to the, um, the progressive vision of the, of the French Revolution, of where the West would head in the 19th century, so towards uh, liberty, equality, and fraternity, so democratic institutions as they were first beginning to to unfold um, within the Russian Empire, some more and more respect for uh, the local nationalities that were brought under the the yoke of the empire and and so on. Now, the Slavophiles had a different had a very different attitude. They they were anti anti Western, as it were, anti progress. They they leaned very heavily on the doctrines of the of the Orthodox Church. They were they were anti-science. They were um, they were men of piety, as it were. But they they were also very very keen that Russia should follow Russian ways in 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 uh, in, in the future as the 19th century was unfolding. So um, there was common ground between. Westernizers and Slavophiles, there were nuances and so on. The the, the Westernizers were not unpatriotic. Um, the Slavophiles were not all reactionary. But there were there were broadly speaking these two two poles of uh, of feeling about uh, Russia's Russia's future. And uh, cutting across those two those two um, broad distinctions were various. Um, ideas about uh, the Russian nation. Now, Russian nationality was was of course inspired by by the the idea of the people, um, but it actually came out of the French Revolution. So, so there's a, there are some paradoxes there. But the um, one could say that you know conservative nationalism in Russia was being was being fed, was or was even being invented. By a certain um, a certain sort of nationally or popular based um, uh, progressivism in in the West. So for Russia, it was all a question of, of what to do with this this energy um, that was gathering behind the idea of the people and the nation, that in the sense of the the folk uh, in Russian narod. In German, the folk. Uh, in 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 French, the purple. And Uvarov could see that this energy needed to be, as far as he was concerned, under the direction of the state. That is, it couldn't be allowed to surge up from from below, from the bottom of society. It had to be directed from the top of society, and it had to be shaped to the to the needs of the autocracy. And so, so his position, as far as Slavophiles and Westerners was. Westernizers was concerned was yes to national uh, national feeling to patriotism so yes to the Slavophiles in a way but not but that feeling has to be uh, channeled by by state institutions so he was uh, an official official uh, 
nationalist, if you like, an official kind of Slavophile, but um, he put narodnost as narodnost, that meaning nationality from that word narod. He, he, that was the third term in his in his tripartite slogan, but it was very much using national feeling in the political interests of the Russian state. What resonance does Uvarov and his ideological legacy have in Putin's Russia? Well, this is this is this is largely my the, the the reason for writing my book. Not not the only one. I mean, Uvarov has been a, a, an extraordinarily um, neglected figure, and I should say that I think he he stands as a theorist of conservatism in Russia not only now, but also in Soviet times. I mean, the terminology was different, but um, for, his, for his tripartite slogan, his um, orthodoxy, autocracy, and official nationality, you could find direct equivalence in, in Soviet times, you know, the, 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 the role of the party um, and uh, the, the, the steering of... of uh, national feeling and the um the doctrine of i mean the communist doctrine was like like the the, the doctrine of, of autocracy in in the 19th century i do spell this out in my book it's a little a little complicated but i believe that the soviet uh, soviet regime was also a deeply conservative one i mean i lived in russia uh for a year between 1978 and 79 and it was then that i first started thinking about Uvarov, and I thought, well, gosh, you know, this man is, um, is a theorist of the times that I'm living in now in 1978, as well as in um, uh, sort of 18, uh, 1838. Um, and as for the present day, well, I see a continuity in, in, in Russian conservatism from, from the early 19th century, through the 19th century, through the 20th century, and into the 21st century. And I think that there have been some pronouncements by uh, Putin. Uh, whatever one thinks of Putin, he has actually tried to explain to the West that Russia cannot be um, a libertarian Western country. So if we cast our minds back to when Putin first came to power, he told the West that what he was trying to do in Russia was to achieve a managed democracy. Now, if you think about um, Uvarov's relationship to the ideals of the French Revolution, you could say, you know, he was taking, uh, Uvarov was taking liberty, equality, fraternity, and managing them on behalf of the, the Russian state. So I think there are extraordinary, uh, there's an extraordinary continuity between Uvarov and uh, Putin's time. It's a, it's a complex subject, but I, I do spell it out in my book. And, and I have to say that it, it 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 has inspired in me some some understanding for the difficulty of of modern Russia as it continues. That is, it's a state that that most of us don't admire, regret the way it's it's developed in the 21st century. But but I think that we have to accept that it's a it's an extremely difficult, anarchic, potentially anarchic political entity. And that its traditions are going to be autocratic, and its own people mostly accept that. And Uvarov again is a way of helping us in the West to understand what is in contention for uh, keeping Russia together 
as a political entity. If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be? Well, I think just what I've said, that it's a, that it's a clue to understanding that, that Russian entity, which we're so, so often told is, you know, an enigma, whatever, whatever it was that um, Winston Churchill said, a, a, a puzzle in an, in an enigma. Um, I, I don't think it is you know, endlessly en- enigmatic. I think that, that we can explain it to ourselves, but we just have to accept that it's, it's not a Western country, but it's very, it's very strongly affiliated to, to Western ideas. And that oblique relationship that Uvarov established to the ideals of the French Revolution and the, the, the kind of Russian alternatives that he put forward in place of those fundamental uh, propositions of liberty, equality, fraternity, gives us a clue to understanding what what Russian politics is is all about. Um, at the same time, the the failings of his character and his own susceptibility to corruption has to remind us of instances of corruption that also occur again and again in the Russian system. I mean, of course, not only in their system, also in our systems, but in, in, in many ways, Ovara, both in his life and in his intellectual career, is, is a paradigm of, of a good Russian going wrong, of a Russian trying to orient his country vis-a-vis the West, trying to make his own country governable, uh, trying to some some degree to hold on to his own integrity as a as a man of progress, um, and I, I think there's a great deal to be learned from his from his example. Well, with that observation, I would like to thank you very much, Leslie Chamberlain, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, Mrs. Chamberlain. Thank you.